Hi, and welcome to the GC Podcast. So, St. Paul's first letter to the Philippians, chapter 1 and verse 12. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me, and of course Paul is speaking about being in prison. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel. Now, now this is a little bit weird um, and, and not what we would necessarily expect. Uh, you know, Paul, you know, the, the great apostle to the Gentiles, you know, the great pioneer and preacher of the gospel, the great church planter, Paul being put in prison by any worldly estimation is not going to help spread the gospel. It's going to have the precise opposite effect. Uh, And here, let's just for a moment go back uh, to to the heart and origin of the gospel story, the death and resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's really hard for us to imagine this, but the New Testament is pretty clear for the very, very first followers of Jesus... By that I mean um, the the disciples that were left um, and and a few others who followed. For them, the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, was a major problem. In fact, if you needed proof that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, this was the best evidence available. He went and got himself killed. We may not know much about messiahs, but one thing we do know is messiahs don't get crucified. That's why. I mean, yeah, it was human fear as well, but that's why the disciples fled. That's why on the afternoon of the first Easter day, Cleopas and his companion are getting out of Jerusalem. The whole thing has gone wrong. Yeah, they've heard this crazy story from the women in the group about uh, the body's not there and he's risen. But, but they don't believe any of that. Why don't they believe it? They believe it because they're good Jews who know their scriptures and know that it teaches them that when the Messiah comes, well, he'll be like some sort of conquering hero, like a second David. He'll give the Romans a good kicking. He'll establish God's kingdom on earth. What he won't do is go and get himself killed, and he certainly won't, when faced with his accusers, be silent. He won't forgive them as they nail him there. We got it wrong. Now, that's another sermon for another day. But there is that amazing bit, isn't there, on the Emmaus Road story where Jesus comes alongside them, they don't recognize him, and he opens up the scriptures to them and he shows them there's another way of understanding your whole tradition which is about a Messiah who suffers, a Messiah who dies, a Messiah whose glory is veiled, 
and a Messiah who, when he rises again, still bears in his hands and on his body the marks of his passion, his suffering love for them and for all the world. Oh, come, let us adore him. That's a sermon for another day. But there is a connection. The connection is that we often get it wrong when we see things from a worldly perspective. And that's exactly what's happening in this verse from Philippians. For this, you know, I'm talking about the very first followers of Jesus, the disciples and those who were with him. We're now on to the very next generation of followers of Jesus, who are now Gentiles as well as Jews, as the gospel spreads across the world. But again, mostly they're seeing things from worldly estimations, whereby any worldly estimation, if your main protagonist, your best speaker, the person who's the most effective in your group, if he gets put in prison, this is bad news. So, what is Paul saying here? Well, what I see in this, I mean, let's be clear, the death and resurrection of Jesus was definitely God's plan. Okay, don't misunderstand me. That's definitely God's plan. Was Paul being put in prison? Interesting question. You can discuss it later over a cup of tea. Was this, was this God's plan that Paul was put in prison? I mean, I think the answer is it might be, it might not be. We don't know for sure. Not a very clear answer, but I reckon that's, I reckon that's probably... So, so the death and resurrection is clearly part of the unfolding purposes of God from the beginning of time. Because what the death and resurrection of Jesus does is actually show us what God is like. God's passionate heart of love, as we're going to come on to in chapter 2 in Philippians. The greatest exposition of this is though he was in the form of God, he did not cling to equality with God, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. It's all there. In this, that's for a, another sermon later by somebody else. So was, was it part of God's plan that Paul's in prison? I don't think we know. But what we do know is this, that God is a redeemer. And therefore... When we offer to God whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever our circumstances, whatever our abilities, God uses them. So maybe this wasn't part of God's plan that Paul got imprisoned. But God, the very faithful, loving God who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, adjusts his plan and uses even Paul's imprisonment, not to set back the spread of the gospel, but to advance it. And that's what Paul recognizes. And what I see in this passage are two things. First of all, what we see throughout this letter, in fact, is Paul's joyful faithfulness in the face of opposition and adversity, that Paul is not going to let a trifling thing like being imprisoned get in the way of the work of the gospel. And what we also see is God's redemption. Or let me put this another way. We may mess things up 
And indeed, we often mess things up. But with God, if it is offered faithfully, nothing is ever wasted. And so God even uses what appears to be a tragedy, the imprisonment of Paul, for his purposes to be known. There's a passage in St. John's Gospel, or even a a verse from John's Gospel, which I love. The the feeding of the 5,000, John chapter 6. After all the 5,000 have been fed, Jesus says to the disciples, gather up all the fragments, let nothing be lost. That's the way it is with our God. There is nothing that any of us, if we offer it, faithfully to God nothing is ever lost nothing is ever wasted if there was time there isn't for me to give you the whole of my testimony let me just give you this little bit as an example of this Christian faith came to me and to my family through my sister it happened because my sister joined the girl guides when she was 10 or 11 in that I'm old this is you know this is like the 1960s early 70s in those days if you if you belong to the girl guides you were required to go to a church parade service once a month she and a small group of friends liked what they found at the church parade service and started going along on the other Sundays in between got confirmed and joined the church I cannot remember my sister ever saying anything to me about her newfound faith and the impact it was having in her life But her silent witness, the silent witness of what was going on in her, had a deep impact on me. And now I think, what about those girl guide leaders? They must, I never know who they are. I've never met them. But they must have been incredible people. That they had so impressed upon a 10-year-old girl the significance of Jesus Christ and faith in him. That not only did she go to the church parade service, she started going along on the other. She got confirmed. She joined the church. And here I am, 50 years later, telling you that with God, nothing is, nothing is lost. Nothing is wasted. It may well be that those girl guide leaders who I, who I do know and did know were faithful Christians themselves. It might have been that they may say, to them, I, do, I feel as if I'm wasting my time, you know, doing this thing week after week after year after year. Does it make any difference? It just feels like, and yet it does. I'm standing here saying it made a difference. And all the times that you may feel that your witness is rejected, misunderstood, ridiculed even. With God, nothing is lost because our God is a redeemer. And we must respond how Paul responds. Joyful faithfulness in the face of whatever opposition or adversity we face. Well, let's use, let's use his words. Philippians 1 and verse 12. I want you to know, not just the church in Philippi, I want G2 to know. Because scripture speaks both to the specifics of that little church in Philippi, in that moment of history, and to every Christian and every church throughout time until that day when we see the Lord face to face. Paul is saying, I want you to know that what has happened to me, which looks like a tragedy and looks like a setback, has actually helped to spread the gospel. Why? Well, first of all, because the guards hear it. 
And then the other prisoners hear it. And then they start bearing witness as well. That, that they see that Paul may be imprisoned, but the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be in chains and is set free and being released in the lives of others. And, and, and Paul goes on to say, which is kind of wonderfully human, and, and whatever their motives might be, they may have pure motives, they may have tainted motives. Is there anybody here who can put up their hand to say, my motives for sharing the gospel are entirely pure and true? Of course they're not. We're human beings who get things wrong. And yeah, I'll, I'll admit it. I don't want the Church of England to collapse on my watch. Of course I don't. And yes, I can say to you that I long for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be known in the heart of every person in this land. And yet at the same time, you know, I, I don't want the church to collapse. But hey, maybe it will require the church to collapse or at least to be transformed. And, and that's hard and that's difficult. And yeah, so my motives are muddled. Paul says, don't worry about that. Obviously, we try to have pure motives. But Paul says, the thing is, God is a redeemer. And if you offer it faithfully, however muddled your motives are, however the church gets it wrong, if you offer it faithfully, then the God who gathers up the fragments will use it for the building of his kingdom. And maybe most of all, the reason the gospel has advanced, this is me speculating, but speculating for a lot of experience of trying to share the gospel, maybe it's because the church now is less dependent upon Paul and more dependent upon the Spirit of God. Take out, you know, the big famous crowd-pleasing, you know, barnet-storming evangelist, put him in prison for a while, and the rest of us have to look around at each other and say, okay. So does that mean we pack up and go home? Or maybe now, that more than anything wakes us up to our own responsibilities to serve and lead the church, to build the kingdom, and to share the gospel. In fact, in Philippians 1.18, Paul says, what does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed. And in that, says Paul, I rejoice. So very practically, what does this mean for us today? Well, I think, first of all, it means this. Your circumstances and your abilities don't matter nearly as much as you think they do. You know, you might be highly influential. You might be, <coughs> excuse me, extremely wealthy. You might be witty and articulate. Or you might not be. I kind of want to say God doesn't give a monkeys. Well, I think he does. But, but the point is this. God has made each one of us with different gifts and different circumstances and different passions and different abilities. And what God doesn't want us to do is to sit there thinking, well, if I had this gift or if I had this opportunity or maybe if I was you know, cleverer, wittier, wealthier, more influential, then I could share the gospel effectively. No, says Paul. 
Whatever your circumstances, whatever your abilities, you are someone who can be an instrument of God's purposes in the world. What matters, says Paul, is that you put God at the centre, that you put God first in your life, that you allow God to work in you and through you, whatever your circumstances and whatever your abilities, in prison or out of prison, young person or older person, ordained person or lay person, Yorkshire person or Lancastrian, I'll use it, Spurs or, I'm a Spurs fan, Spurs or Arsenal, um, male or female, June or Greek, all, because we love, we love, isn't it, you know, human beings, number one favourite subject, judging each other and building walls. God is fantastically not interested in our divisions and in our judgments of each other. What God wants to do is use each of us. And let me be clear, when the church divides even against itself on these things, the devil has an absolute field day. No, what matters is that we put God first. What matters is that we allow God to work in us and through us. What matters is that we recognize our motives won't always be pure and that we will get things wrong. But if we offer it faithfully to God, if we offer it with a penitent and humble heart, if we are merciful to others because we know just how much we need mercy ourselves, then God will use us. And the kingdom will be advanced because it will flow through us by our lives, yes, by our words, but also by our deeds. And this is, of course, what Paul was saying uh, in the verses that just preceded our reading today. This is my prayer, said Paul, that your love may overflow and that you can determine what is best and that there will be through you a harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory of God. I, I love the image which you get a lot in Paul's letters, the image of overflowing. Now, there was a very famous evangelist in York um, uh, who I guess many of you have heard of, some of you may have known, David Watson, um, who, who was at the heart of the renewal of the Church of St. Michael the Belfry in the 1970s, was it? 1980s? Um, a, a sermon illustration that David Watson often used was, I, I don't know if this happened to you when you were at school. So, like, when I, some of you are still at school. When I was at school, um, there'd always be, there'd be a jug of water on the table and sort of beakers that you'd, you know, cups that you'd fill the water up from. And then some smart aleck would fill up the cup absolutely to the brim. And so it was kind of impossible, or virtually impossible, to pick up the cup without getting, you know, without getting wet. And the image for evangelism that David Watson used was actually not so much about how do I share my faith, 
which we do need. It's not that we don't need to know about that. But he said, you, you, we probably worry too much about that. How do I share it? What do I say? He said, worry about whether you're being filled up. Worry about whether you're being replenished. Because if you're being replenished, if you're being filled up, you will overflow. There's nothing you can do about it. You will overflow. And therefore, when people encounter you, even, <coughs> even if they reject you, they're going to get wet. They're going to be splashed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that overflows from your life. Um, and that's what we see in Paul. It, it's what we see in the scriptures, page after page after page. People who are full, replenished with the love of God in Jesus Christ, and it overflows into the words they say, but also into the lives that they lead. I think I, think I should... It's time for me to stop, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I'm just getting started. So I, I'd like to... Um, I'd like, can I, is there time just to finish with a couple of stories? So a, a couple of stories about how I've seen this at work. Um, some of the stories are true stories. Some of the stories are just stories I've heard. Um, but the stories, for me, speak about the living and sharing of the gospel in the networks of ordinary everyday life. So it just kind of flows out. Um, and it flows out because we're doing what Paul did simply faithfully recognizing it doesn't matter who I am or what my circumstances are. What matters is God has made me. He's given me gifts and opportunities and talents and circumstances. Let me use those, whatever they are, to faithfully serve God. So story number one, about a little girl who comes home late from school. Her mother is very, very worried. Um, she's due home at, let's say, uh, four o'clock. Five past four, she hasn't come home. Ten past four, she hasn't come home. Quarter past four, she hasn't come home. Twenty, but the mother's starting to get really worried. Twenty past four, she hasn't come home. Twenty-five past four, the mother is imagining something terrible has happened. She's on the verge of phoning the police. She's in a panic. Half past four, the, the little girl still isn't home. Twenty-five to five, the mother is in a state. The little girl waltzes in through the back door. The mother, in her relief, sweeps the little girl up in her arms, so glad that she is safe and well. But as is the way, some of us are parents here, as is the way with us parents, relief quickly turns to anger. Where have you been? You know, didn't you know how worried I'd be? You know, why didn't you call me? Why, why are you late? <clears throat> and the little girl says, well, I was coming home from school. And uh, I passed a woman who was holding the most enormous vase, beautiful vase. And as I passed her, she tripped on a paving stone that was out of sync. The vase fell from her hands and broke into a thousand pieces. Oh, says the mother, is that why you're late home? Did you stop to help the lady pick up the pieces? No, says the little girl. I stopped to help her cry. So that's story number one. I'll let you work out whether these stories mean anything. Story number two. I stopped to help her cry. Yeah, perhaps I will just say something. 
See, that's the church I want us to be. I want to be, us to be a church that's deeply, deeply, deeply embedded in people's lives, in the lives of the communities we serve, so that we are alongside people in their joy and in their sorrow. And it's our ability to be alongside people that will be one of the ways that we show them the love of Jesus who's alongside us. Second story. Could be a man this time. Uh, oh, no, big, no, it's a big woman. Big, big, bold, brassy. She comes from Halifax. Big, brassy woman. She's strolling. She's, it's a hot day. It's Easter. Um, she is walking down the road in, I don't know, well, Halifax, you know, Barnsley. Let's set it somewhere, somewhere gritty. Um, yeah, Barnsley. Um, and she's strolling down the road, and she passes a Christian bookshop, and in the window of the bookshop, there's a tableau, which they've made, depicting the kind of Good Friday Easter story, Jesus on the cross, Mary at the foot of the cross, the tomb over yonder, the soldiers rolling dice, that kind of thing. They've made, they put it in the window. This woman stands in front of the window, and for about 10 minutes, she just stares intently at this picture. Then she goes into the shop. She goes up to the counter. She puts her elbows on. The, there's a timid little man behind the counter. Uh, she puts her elbows on the counter and says to the man, is that Jesus dead in your window? And uh, he says, uh, um, uh, uh, yes, yes, it is. Uh, and um, uh, and, and that, that woman standing at the foot of the cross, is that Mary, the mother of Jesus? And, and he says, um, well, well, yes, yes, it is. And um, those soldiers rolling dice, are, are, they, are, they, are they the soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross? And he says, uh, um, uh, yes, uh, uh, yes, it is. And, and that tomb over yonder, is that where they laid the body of Jesus? And he said, uh, yes, yes, it is. And she said, that Jesus, him dead, him buried, him gone forever. And he said, well, no. Hadn't you heard? He rose again. And at this point, her face breaks into an enormous smile. And she says, heard it? I reckon I've heard it a thousand times. But I just glory to hear it again. And maybe I'll stop there. In order for us to be a church that is full, that is replenished, that is overflowing, that is able to be faithful, even with rejection and adversity, we need to be people who hear the story again and again. Because it's this story and what God has done in Jesus and nothing else which is our hope. And is our message. And I believe as we, that's why we're here today. And as we hear it, so we are better able 
to share it. Amen.